My question to you as we start the teaching this morning in John 7 is how thirsty are you? How thirsty are you? We're in John 7, and we're in verses 37 through 39 this morning. Before we look at those directly, I want to set a framework or set the context in which this occurs. We've talked, we've been actually in John 7 in the same discussion or same period, same general setting for a while, because all of John 7 is the Feast of Booths, this week-long fall feast set in Jerusalem. And if you remember... This is, this is called several things, actually. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. That's the reminder of Israel coming through the wilderness and God's provision when they lived in tents in the wilderness. So Tabernacles and Booths. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering because once they were in the land, this was the time of year in which the harvest had been brought in. So it was a time to remember the distant past, the wilderness wandering. Then it was also a time to come together and give thanks corporately because the harvest had just been brought in. This is one of the three feasts that all Jewish men were commanded to attend in Jerusalem. And for many of them, this was considered the best of the best, so to speak. This was the best time to be in Jerusalem because especially related to ingathering, it was a time of celebration. There were lots of sacrifices. You can read about this feast in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which we won't go into this morning. But you can imagine Jerusalem's a walled city. It's only so big. But for this week, you're bringing in tons of folks from all over the nation. And then beyond that, Jewish pilgrims who lived in other parts of the world would come for these feasts also. So Jerusalem is packed. There are, there are booths, there are these leafy bowers of tree limbs on housetops, in the streets, also in the courts of the temple as well. And then, for what it's worth, if you'd like to read more about this, uh, Alfred Edersheim was a Jewish Christian who lived and wrote more than 100 years ago. His Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah is still quoted by theologians and scholars today with reference to things like this. And he's got two large volumes. One's on the Old Testament. I can't remember what it's called, Old Testament history or something like that. And then this Life and Times for the New. And it's great reading. He was an outstanding writer, really. Very descriptive, very well informed. Uh, and just as it's good, uh, it's easy reading, if you like. But it's informative and helpful. And the things I'm telling you now come from Edersheim's book. And his gleaning, his information comes from the Jewish Talmud. Now, you guys know if you were a Jew, you not only would have the Old Testament scriptures that you'd read, but you you would read other Jewish writings. And the Talmud are some of these other Jewish writings. And so that's where the information we're getting today comes from. In John 7, in verses 37 through 39, this this is the setting. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. Jerusalem is filled. And remember, every morning, this is true any day, every morning there's the morning sacrifice. But on the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, after the morning sacrifice, there's also the sacrifices that belong to the feast. And Booths was a little odd in that there were a descending number of bulls and other rams and goats offered each day that the week went on. He says this is the last day, the great day of the feast. There's a little bit of disagreement. Is this the seventh day or the eighth day? 
Edersheim believes, and, and I tend to agree with him, that it's probably the seventh day. And so the comments I'm giving you are based on what took place on the last day of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. So the setting in which Jesus is when he's going to stand up and talk to us here in John 7, he's in the courts of the temple. This is probably the morning sacrifice. And because it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests... And the Levites are there. And do you guys remember the Temple Mount? You can still see this in modern pictures of Israel today or Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, we don't think of it as a mountain, but that flat top, Mount Moriah, that was the Temple Mount where the the Muslim mosques are today, two of them. Anyway, that flat top, that was the Temple Mount. And the, the largest court outside was where Gentiles could come. And then inside that, the court of the women. Jewish women could come in a little further. And inside that, the priest court. And then you would go up the stairs up to the temple area itself where the altar was. So there there were these various uh, barricades, if you will. But it was a very, very large area. Well, this would have been full during this time. So the priests and the Levites, they're up around the altar in in the area just in front of the temple itself. And then outside that would be the men and outside that would be the women. And then the Gentiles would be outside there. In other words, you'd you'd have thousands and thousands of people would be crammed into this area for this time. And on this day, the the Talmud tells us, and this is probably the the scenario that Jesus is in, on this day, when when this morning feast was was going to start for the Feast of Tabernacles, they would send groups of priests out of the temple precincts. And one group would go down to another part of town and they would cut down the boughs from certain kinds of trees, fruit-bearing trees. And this was part of the requirement of the law, actually, from the time of Moses. And they and their priests would go, and they'd collect all these tree limbs, like on the uh, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they wave palm fronds. This is something like they did on this same morning. They brought in these tree limbs, and they would wave them as part of their worship. Another group of these priests would descend from the Temple Mount. They would go down to the southeast corner of the city to the Pool of Siloam. And in this group, there was one priest who carried a golden pitcher. And he would fill the pitcher at the Pool of Siloam, and he would bring that back up. These two groups that had left the temple precincts would come back up, come in together, and the priest holding the golden pitcher would go up to the altar at the same time that the priest was pouring out the wine for the morning sacrifice. And if you remember, when the lambs were offered or the goats were offered as a sacrifice, wine was poured out as part of that sacrifice also. Well, on the altar area, on one end, Edersheim tells us, there was a silver cup, if you will, or funnel, in which that wine would be poured on one end of the altar, and there was another one on the other end, and it was in that other end that the guy with the golden pitcher would go and pour out his water. So as the sacrifice takes place, they converge, they come back in together, they pour out the wine and the water, and after they do that, they start singing and chanting back and forth, the Levites and the crowds. You know, if you're in a church that practices certain kinds of liturgy, you'd see the same thing today where uh, the priest or someone up front will say something and the congregation responds, and this is the way the Jews did these psalms. And what they would do is they would chant, sing, respond, the Psalms called the Psalms of Hallel or the Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms, 113 through 118. So after this water's been poured out with the wine, 
they chant and they respond the Psalms of Hallel, and they finish with Psalm 118. I want to read to you the last of this psalm because this is what precedes Jesus' comments. By the way, I forgot to mention, people say, why did they pour out water? What's the deal with the water? Um, Probably a few things. Two things principally. Because the feast recalled God's provision in the wilderness, it was a reminder that God provided water from a rock. So they're remembering God provided for us in the wilderness when we lived in tabernacles. And we pour that water out, and it's a reminder of God's provision of water. And if you remember, in a place where there was no water in the wilderness, Moses strikes a rock. Paul tells us that rock was Christ. And water overflowing, abundant water, runs out and provides all of Israel's needs there for water in the wilderness. Another thing probably, though, is you remember now they're in the land. They've just brought in that year's crops. And as you know, the Middle East is a fairly dry, arid place. They depended on the rains for their crops. Dry land farming was the deal. So they had to have the early rains and they had to have the late rains for these crops to come in. And there's probably also the thought that the water represented both thanks to God for the rains that had provided that year's crops, but also an appeal to God for the next year's rains also. There's also the thought, and we'll get into this in a little bit, that the waters probably also were meant to be some kind of a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is a little less clear, at least historically, but you'll see why that's inferred here in a little bit when we look at some other scriptures. Whatever we try and tie this to, any of these symbols represent life and hope, the water being used at this feast. So the water's been poured out with the wine, The altar area is full. The court areas are full. It's a packed house in Jerusalem. And they're finishing up the Psalms of Hallel with Psalm 118. And forgive me, I'm going to hatchet this up as I go because I just want to insert some comments here. So just to lay context. From verse 22, Psalm 118, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, of course, the Sanhedrin will later reject Jesus, the chief cornerstone, in no short time at all. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. The Hebrew for Lord, do save, is Hosanna. And in not too far from this same feast, too, the crowds will be yelling on Palm Sunday. This same thing, they're quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna, God save now. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Of course, Jesus has just told us in John 7, he has come in the name of the Father. Verse 27, the Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the the festive sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to cover the sins of the world. He is the festal sacrifice. Verse 28, You are my God, and I give thanks to you. My God, I extol you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 29, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of course, God's ultimate kindness in any way, shape, or form is sending Christ to die for our sins and to save us. So, Packed house, they've just finished Psalm 118, so this morning sacrifice is over. And now there's this lull. 
There's this quiet time. The courts are full, the priests, the Levites, everybody's there. And then out of the gallery someplace comes this yell, comes this cry in the midst of their staid and solemn liturgy. All the eyes are focused towards the altar. Everybody's thinking about the words of the Psalms and they're worshiping God and they're giving thanks, etc. And out of the back, out of the bleachers, somebody stands up and yells, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, two things on this. One is just the shock value. You know, if you were at a big staid cathedral for Christmas Eve or Easter morning, let's say, you know, someplace with a very formal ceremony, a very formal physical structure year around, you know, people don't jump up and shout and dance in the aisles and that kind of thing. And you're in the midst of this and there's a brief quiet and you hear some yahoo yell from the choir loft, believe in me and never drink again, you know, or whatever. You'd wonder, what in the world is going on? This guy's entirely out of place, out of line. That's exactly what Jesus does. All eyes are on the ceremony and towards the altar. This took, uh, what's the Jewish word for, uh, I can't remember. Thank you, chutzpah, yeah. But this is the context in which Jesus stands up and cries out with a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. They've just seen the water poured out. They've just sung the songs of Hallel, Hallelujah. The sacrifice, the morning sacrifice has been made. They're waiting for the sacrifices for the feast to be made. And it's in that setting that Jesus stands in the midst of these throngs and yells, and takes all the attention off the altar, off the sacrifices, off the water and the wine being poured out, and puts it directly on himself. And if this was anyone but Jesus Christ, this would be the wrong thing at the wrong time. This would be sacrilege. Only if it was Jesus would this thing be appropriate. And of course it was Jesus and it was appropriate. But you can imagine... You heard somebody yelling now, you'd wonder, who is that? Now, maybe some people around him see who it is. Well, remember, this group that he's been talking to during this week, some people say, this is the guy they're trying to kill. And maybe they're thinking, man, he's stupid. Because they're trying to kill him and he shows them all where he's at. And other people say, this guy has a demon. And they're probably looking at him thinking, there he goes again, you know. He's, he's making trouble. He's causing a disruption. Others said, we think he's it. He's the Messiah. We've believed in him. And f- probably for them, he's revealing himself appropriately. But this would have been a startling thing to occur at all, no matter what was said. Anyone who was crying out in the midst of this ceremony, this would have been a startling and disruptive thing. And that's exactly the setting in which Jesus does it. This is not the first time Jesus has talked about water, though, like this. Do you remember back in John 4? Jesus, in kind of a much quieter setting, you know, kind of a rural pastoral setting, the well outside the Samaritan city. Just one woman and just Jesus and 
Remember, she's been married a few times, and Jesus has a conversation with her, and he says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Same thing, same thought. And in verse 39, Jesus tells us what the water of life is. It says, verse 39, This he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now again, coming from anyone but Jesus Christ, these claims are, they're not only fantastic, but they're just irrational. Think of the other claims he's made. Remember in John 6, he said he was the bread of life, that you could work for a certain kind of bread on earth, but you'd eat it and you'd die. But if you ate him, the bread of life, you'd live forever. John 8, not long from now we'll read, Jesus says he's the light of the world. No man needs to walk in darkness, he's the light of the world. John 14, he'll say he's the way to the Father. He's the truth and the life inherently. And in this passage, he's using water to say the same thing. He says, if you want to live, if you want to really live, then come to me. Come to me. So that's the setting. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a packed house to which Jesus stands up and yells this. Another thought, before I move on, I might uh, remind you of Proverbs 8. When, pro- when wisdom is pictured as a person in Proverbs, it's a woman. And in Proverbs 8, this woman, wisdom, she wants to give life to anyone who's willing to take it. And so what does she do? Proverbs 8 says she goes to the gate of the city and she goes to the streets and she goes to the corners. In other words, she goes to the most congested, crowded areas where the absolutely the very most people can hear and she cries out with a loud voice, come to me if you want to live. And Jesus standing up here in John 7, it's the same picture. It's wisdom crying out with a loud voice, come to me if you want to live. So that's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the setting he speaks that in. Now this theme about the water, though, and this water, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, and then not only do you drink, but then somehow you become this fountain. Well, this is not a new concept in the scriptures at all, and so... We'll take a step back a little bit further. You can turn, if you like, to Ezekiel 47. Uh, In Ezekiel, in the 40s, Ezekiel is given a vision of a temple that has never occurred on the earth. That is, a temple in Jerusalem, the dimensions of which has never been built. Some people argue about this. Is this a future temple? Is this the temple that will be in the millennium when Jesus reigns on the earth in the future? What, What and when? Hard to say. Don't know for sure. But Ezekiel sees it and he measures it. And then in chapter 47, the angel who's been taking him along the ride brings him back to the temple. There's a problem with this temple. It's got a leak. They need to call the maintenance man because they've got a plumbing problem. This is what he says. This is what he sees. He, the angel, brings me back to the door of the house. The house here is the temple, God's house. 
And behold, water was flowing from underneath the threshold toward the east. Water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, and from the altar. And there was water, as as Ezekiel's walking now down away from the temple, and he's getting out from Jerusalem, he reaches water that's as deep as his ankles. And then he walks further, and the water all coming out of the temple, up to his knees, and he walks further, and it reaches his loins, his midsection, and further, and it becomes a river that could not be forded. And on the bank of this river created by the water that's flowing out of the temple, there were trees on one side and on the other side. These waters, this river coming from the temple, flows toward the sea, being made uh, flowing toward the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. This water that flows out of the temple not only becomes this river that supports the life of the trees, but when it flows into the sea, the salt sea, it turns the salt sea to fresh water, to life-giving water. You know, I can't drink salt water. The water that comes from the temple changes the constitution of the sea and makes it apt for life as well. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. Everything will live where the river goes. And then verse 12, And by the river, on its banks, on one side and on the other side, will grow all trees for food. Their leaves won't wither, their fruit won't fail, they will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So here's Ezekiel, uh, 600 years before Jesus, and he sees a temple with a leak. And the water's coming out of the temple and it becomes a river of life. And it gives life to everything around it. That's what he sees. Listen to this from Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. He, the angel, showed me, John, the apostle, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, the new Jerusalem, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In Ezekiel, he sees the temple, and the water comes from the temple and flows out, and it gives life. In Revelation, remember earlier, John says there's no temple because the new Jerusalem is the dwelling of God himself. So instead of the temple, from the throne of God and the Lamb comes the same thing. A river of life flows out from the presence of God in the new Jerusalem, his heaven. The point I'm making is this. What God showed Ezekiel in this temple and what John sees in the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22 is what Jesus is offering you and me in John 7. It's the same thing. Jesus is inviting people who are thirsty, spiritually thirsty, to come to him for a drink. And he says, and when you get this drink from me that satisfies your own personal thirst, it won't stop there. Because my presence within you will be like a river of life that will spring up from your inmost being and will flow out of you giving life to others. Remember, Paul says that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become his what? Temple. 
That's what Paul says. You are the temple of God. Why? The temple is where God lives. And when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit, verse 39, comes to live in them. So every Christian is the temple of God, and we are corporately, collectively, together, the temple of God. So when Jesus stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles and cries out, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, and when you believe in me, you'll get this overflowing river of life, it's the same thing he's talked about in Ezekiel, and it's the same thing he talks about in Revelation 22. This should be a little bit mind-blowing for you. That Jesus is offering you what you and I read about in Revelation 22, a river of life coming out from you because you are the temple of God. This is mind-blowing for me. Christ says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink and your soul will be satisfied. But then beyond that, not only will he satisfy your soul, but he, by his Holy Spirit within you, will become a life-giving source, the river of life, to those around you. You'll be like the temple. You'll, You'll be leaky like the temple. You'll be like the New Jerusalem. You'll have the Holy Spirit the river of life, overflowing you, overflowing your life and spilling out to those around you. You know, hopefully all of us have known someone that we think, I love being around them because I'm encouraged. Or I love being around them because I'm challenged spiritually, appropriately. I love being around them because after I've spent time with them, I feel more life. I feel more alive. I feel more convicted, I feel more encouraged, I feel more motivation. That is the impact we should have on those around us. We should come to Christ thirsty and be satisfied, but then he doesn't want it to end there. He wants to overflow from us and create this river of life that affects those around us. So he stands up in the midst of this staid, solemn assembly And he yells out, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Your soul will be satisfied and you'll overflow with life to those around you. Now, if you ask what's necessary to experience this, what's necessary to experience this overflowing life, the first thing is, of course, you've got to be thirsty. Remember, he's addressed this to those who are thirsty. You know, many people never come to Christ because they have no sense of need. Now, I find this overwhelming. I find this unbelievable. But it's true. I was such a wreck, and my life was such a mess, you know, when I heard the gospel, that I was ready. You know, help me, save me. Many people, though, life's pretty good. And they're probably pretty adequate in various ways. And life's good, and I'm good, and there's no sense of need. When Jesus stands and cries out, he cries out and says, if you're thirsty. To qualify for this drink that satisfies, you got to be thirsty. You got to be thirsty. And if we don't have some sense of need, 
it's hard to hear the, hear the call or it's hard for the appeal, the call to have any appeal. We've got to be thirsty. The second thing is, and this is easy, what does it mean to drink? She says, come to me, drink. It just says, verse 38, he who believes in me. To drink of Jesus, no different than to eat the flesh of the Son of Man, John 6. It's simply to believe. There's no hard work. He's done the work for us. He says, here's the glass of water. Have a drink. I think where the rubber meets the road on this for most of us then becomes, okay, I've been thirsty. I came. I believed. Now, where's the water? We're not going to go there today. We'll look at this next week because we'll spend next week talking about the Holy Spirit, developing this more fully. Because I think for most of us, if you've trusted the Lord and you read a passage like this, like I do, I've spent half my Christian life asking the Lord, where's the beef? The old commercial, where's the beef, Lord? Where's this fountain? It's what I'm looking for. So we'll talk about that next week. But there's the promise here of a life that is, I suppose you would have to say, nothing less than extraordinary for everyone who believes in Christ. You'll come thirsty, you'll leave satisfied, and you'll leave with this source of overflowing life and water. You'll be the temple of God And he'll pour out of your life the river of life to those around you. When I think of John 7 in this context, Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22, and realize that's the same offer Jesus made then, and of course he's making today, this gets my attention. This makes me think, Lord, I know there's more than I'm experiencing, and I want that, and that's a good thing. I think we should feel that. But if we're thirsty... There's a source to get quenched. There's a place for our soul to be satisfied. It's in Christ. And he doesn't stop by satisfying us, but he pours out from us. He overflows from within us a river of life that should be coming out, should be fresh water, not salty, and should be blessing or making others around us thirsty, if you will. Before we close, I want to say that, and actually I'll have the girls, can I get... Two volunteers right there, ladies. She passed these out. I figured it was no coincidence when I was studying John 7, oh, a month or so back, that uh, the Gospel for Asia publication came out at the same time, and Rachel's showing you this page, Bethany. Feel free to peruse this as the girls get you on. I'm studying John 7, and I'm reading Gospel for Asia, and they quote John 7 and a couple other verses as well about the water of life. And they describe Christians in various places in India who lack, literally, fresh water. And that Christians are not allowed to visit, in many places, the public well because of their allegiance to Christ. In the example they cite here, Gospel for Asia provided the funds to install a fresh water well in this town. And there were two other wells which they weren't free to use. The two other wells brought forth salty water. But the Christian well brought forth 
fresh water. And of course, where did the villagers want to go? To the fresh water well. And it was an absolutely living illustration that here were these Christian believers who were thirsty. God provided them with some water to satisfy their own thirst. And then literally, their fresh water well overflowed to bless others And their well has become a place that they share the gospel with those who come to get their fresh water. I've already talked to the deacons about this, and we would like to make this a project, frankly, through May 15th. We want to raise at least $3,000. You can see the costs on here. The wells in U.S. dollars are between $550 and $950. I always figure things cost more, not less. So if we figured $1,000 a well, we would like to take the next two months to raise specifically for this project at least $3,000 to send to GFA for freshwater wells in India. I just think this would be a great uh, hands-on way of putting our feet to something that has great spiritual value, and then in this way it has great practical value as well. But I love this story that because the Christians and their well have a source of fresh water, this becomes an opportunity for them to talk with the folks around them. And I, I think this is from the hand of the Lord, and the other guys did too. So would you take this home, read this if you don't have time to here this morning. Take this home and read it. I think you'll find it encouraging. And then also, May 15th, a Sunday, will be our deadline. We'd like to have all our funds collected by then for sure. And think about it and pray about it. And then give whatever you can. Uh, Remember 2 Corinthians, uh, it's acceptable to God what we can give, not what we can't give. But pray about it. We want to make this a special project. We won't take uh, church funds for this. We want to raise this independent of, of the normal giving. So think about it, pray about it. And then over the next uh, two months and change, uh, you'll need to designate that for either wells or whatever you want to do. You'll need to make sure, put a sticky note on it, whatever, that it's separated from any of your regular giving so we can keep that separate. But uh, I just thought great story, uh, great timing, and something that we as a church could do would be very practical and also have spiritual implications for the folks who would be getting the fresh water and the water of life. So let's pray. Lord, it blows my mind that passages like Revelation 22 are meant to be, in a spiritual sense, fulfilled in us here even today. And that, Lord, those who have come to know you, those who have come to believe in you, are meant to have this overflowing presence of your Spirit from within us. Lord, we would have to honestly say that most of the time we feel like we're probably a dry well and we're wondering where that water is. Father, I pray that you will help us, that you'll lead us as we ask ourselves those questions. Help us this week to simply reflect before you on things in our life perhaps that are keeping you from blessing us in the ways you'd like to, from experiencing this joy-filled peaceful, overflowing sense of your presence in your life. Father, thanks that you deign to come down and not just dwell with us, but in us. 
Lord, thanks that you are the thirst quencher. You're the one who is satisfying fully to our souls, and you're the one who wants to overflow our lives to bless those around us. I pray for each of us we have this week more of the experience of being satisfied by you personally and being used by you to be a blessing to others as well. And Lord, related to this collection and this project, we want to be a blessing to brothers and sisters in Christ in India. And we ask without any burden, Lord, and certainly without any guilt or anything else, you show us how to give. We want to bless them, and we want them to be reaching their neighbors and friends with the life-giving message of your Son as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.